Hi everyone, this is Richard from MTG Goldfish. Today I'm excited to share with you guys our new MTG Goldfish podcast. Uh, it'll be a weekly podcast where we highlight the latest Magic the Gathering news. Uh, it'll give us a chance to give you an in-depth look behind some of the numbers on the website, provide discussion behind the articles, and provide a general platform for interaction between the fans and people behind the website. So joining me today is our podcast host, Chaz, from Bolt Snap Bolt. And uh, he's an admin of the MTG Finance Facebook group. And Seth, better known to you guys as Saffron Olive, author of the many great articles on MTG Goldfish. So do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Hello, everyone. I'm Chaz Volpe. Uh, as Richard introduced me, I do have a community, Bolt Snap Bolt. I'm an admin of the MTG Finance community and right here for the website, mtggoldfish.com. I started playing Magic when I was about 12 to 13 years old. And my favorite card in the Wizards universe has to be Satin, Cross and Protect. Hi, guys. I'm Seth. Uh, you probably know me better as Saffron Olive from Reddit and Twitter and, of course, MTG Goldfish. Um, I'm really excited to be here and try to lend some context behind uh, some of the articles I write and all the great data that's on the site. So anyway, I started playing Magic back in 2007. Uh, my first draft ever was the original Ravnica block, which I'm always, I've always been very proud of, and that's still my favorite block to draft. My favorite card is Balduvian Shaman, just because the wording on it is so illogical. <laughs> uh, if you don't know what it does, uh, look it up in Google or on Goldfish. It's, it makes me laugh every time I've, uh, I read it, and I've read it a lot of times. So I'm glad to be here with you guys. And uh, I'm Richard. I'm the creator uh, behind MTG Goldfish, and I run it. I started playing Magic back around 4th edition, so my fondest memories are, you know, the great expansions of Fallen Empires and Homelands. <laughs> um, I've been playing on and off, uh, recently got back into the game around the time of uh, Innistrad. I primarily play Legacy, Standard, and uh, Limited formats, and my favorite card is a toss-up between Liliana of the Veil and Karn Liberated. Those are two good cards to like. All right, so again, I'm your host, Chaz Volpe, and we're just going to dive right in here. As Richard said, we're going to be doing weekly things, but for this week, we're in the midst of Fate Reforged spoilers, so there's a lot to cover. We're going to be talking about some mythics. We're going to spend a good chunk of time for each mythic, just so everyone uh, can get our ideas and thoughts about that. And we're going to then move on to a segment where we talk about Fate Reforged as a whole, and our, our initial thoughts and review of the set currently. So, and then we'll wrap things up for the week. As each week goes and progresses, we'll add things to the podcast, thinking about doing a, a mailbag or other things as we plan them. So a lot of good things uh, down the pipeline for the MTG Goldfish podcast. So let's just dive right in. There has been already some people publishing articles on the MTG Goldfish site. But we're going to talk about things here. So we're going to move on to the Mythics, and we're going to start with the Planeswalker of the set, Ugin. So for anyone who has not looked at the spoilers yet, you should probably go do that right now. It's a very interesting set, and we're going to start with the most interesting Planeswalker that we've seen for you know the past few sets. So Ugin the Spirit Dragon, 8 generic mana. Planeswalker comes in with 7 loyalty. The first ability, plus two, Ugin the Spirit Dragon deals three damage to target creature or player. Minus X, exile each permanent with converted mana cost X or less. That's one or more colors. 
and the ultimate minus 10. You gain 7 life, draw 7 cards, then put up to 7 permanent cards from your hand onto the battlefield. I'm going to open up to my co-hosts here. What do you guys think about Ugin, our planeswalker? I'm going to start it off with Richard. So Ugin is a big, splashy dragon, but I, I don't see that he has a home anywhere. In standard, 8 mana is a lot. The closest analogies we can see are probably Nicol Bolas and Karn Liberated. And those guys saw fringe play or barely any kind of play. Like, Karn is a control trump, and I don't see Ugin as being the same thing, and I don't see you justifying spending 8 mana to play this card otherwise. And in Eternal formats, Ugin is at a weird cost at 8. So in Modern, you can't really Tron him out. Tron gives you 7 mana. So I, I don't, I don't yeah. see him being, having a home anywhere besides, you know, the casual kitchen table. Interesting. So that's, that's my take on him. Seth, uh, Seth, do you want to... Well, uh, I, I agree with Richard here. That one extra mana is a huge deal when it comes to modern. Going Tronland, 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 and then Karn and nuke your opponent's land, that's good game against a lot of the decks in the format. Yugen can't do that. Like, turn four Yugen is magnitudes worse than a turn three Karn. So I don't think he has really any potential in modern. And I'm not sure he fits in standard either. At the same time, though, just mythic, planeswalker, dragon, those three words are the recipe for a casual hit. Like, this card is going to be all over EDH tables, all over kitchen tables, and I think it'll have some demand just from that. It's a dragon planeswalker. Usually planeswalkers, even the less played ones, usually command like kind of a planeswalker premium. So that might apply here. Uh, again, yeah, I'm going to have to lean towards what both of you said on the constructed viability of Ugin. I, I don't really know if this is going to be an alternative to Karn or maybe a Devotion deck pops up that wants to be ramping to Ugin. We saw a Planeswalker at 7 mana, the Apex Predator, the latest incarnation of Garuk, and uh, that really didn't see much play despite being quite powerful and having four abilities. So yeah, I don't really know. This is kind of like the antithesis to Nicole Planeswalker. Uh, I'll bet a lot better because of the eight generic costs instead of the you having to devote to those colors specifically. Again, yeah, I just don't know if this is going to break into the constructed scene in any type of way. Yeah, like the only way you can possibly cast Ugin is with the Nyxos. However, that's a terrible non-bow because to, you know, to power up Nyxos, you need a lot of colored permanence on the battlefield, yeah. and when you minus Ugin, you're going to wipe your entire board. Yeah, not much more to talk about Ugin, despite being a potentially powerful planeswalker. Do you guys want to kind of have any closing thoughts before we move on to the next mythic? Yeah, I just wanted to mention real quick, since we're going with the Karn comparison here, which is also a small set planeswalker, Karn during its entire life uh, in Standard was around $15, so I think it's pretty safe to expect Ugin... Uh, to drop down somewhere in the like 10 to $15 range. So uh, I personally am not too excited about buying in on him right now, unless you are really thinking you're going to be playing him in a deck. So I would wait a couple months if uh, if you want to get your Yugens for your EDH deck. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback and say the same thing. I mean, even if you were going to play Ugin a fair amount, I would still probably wait to pick him up. We'll get into more about what we feel about the set that can apply here in terms of how many viable mythics there are actually in this set that could limit Ugin 
uh, already. With that being said, let's move on to a more controversial uh, <laughs> mythic that has come out. Saffron Olive has written about this, actually, Warden of the First Tree. And uh, I guess I'll open it up to Saffron because, you know, you didn't get the <laughs> reaction you were really looking for when it comes to this mythic. So I'll open it up to you first. Yeah, I, yeah, I wrote a, a piece on my blog, The First Day Warden Was Spoiled, saying that I thought it was a good card and a playable card in Standard. And I got downvoted and yelled at and told I have no idea what I was talking about for the whole rest of the day. But basically, here's what I think about Warden. I, ha I have three things that make me think that he's a playable standard card. First, Abzan Agro is not only a tier one deck, but it's the most played deck right now. And that's a deck that calls itself Agro, but doesn't have any one drops. It has Thoughtseize, but it doesn't have any creatures that can hit the board on turn one. So I think Warden can fit in there, possibly over like Hair, to, Hair of the Wilds. Number two, Warden is one of the few, maybe the only creature I can think of, that attacks for three on turn two. If you look at Goblin Guide, one of the premier aggro one-drops of all time, on turn three, Goblin Guide's gotten in for six damage. Warden on turn three, assuming you pump him on turn two, has also gotten in for six damage. I think that's a big deal in Standard. And finally, it's a one-drop that is not only the best creature on the board in turn two when it's attacking for three, but it's the best creature on the board on turn six and seven and eight when it's a huge trampling lifelink beater. So I think it's a playable standard card. What do you guys think? Interesting. Before I move on to get Richard take on the Warden, give you the text on the card. Warden of the First Tree is a one green for a one-one which has three abilities, Mythic, one generic, and a hybrid black-white. Warden of the First Tree becomes a human warrior with base power and toughness 3-3. Three, three. The second ability, two generic and two hybrid black-white. If Warden of the First Tree is a warrior, it becomes a human spirit warrior with trample and lifelink. And its final ability, three generic and three hybrid black-white. If Warden of the First Tree is a spirit, put five plus one plus one counters on it. And we are told from the rules text that you can continue to play this ability. So sorry, Seth. I'm going to have to join the haters on this one. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see how this is playable. You definitely don't want to pay two mana on your second turn to get a 3-3. You know, if you had a card that was a one mana 3-3, give your opponent a time lock, would you do it? Probably not, right? That's true. The, the thing about figure of destiny comparison is there, there's two major differences. First is you can't pump them with green, right? You need to use the either white mana or black mana, and that forces you into, you know, a two-color deck or a three-color deck. And especially in standard, you know, when you're playing these multicolor decks, you want to play the Skylands, and those Skylands don't help your aggro cause, right? Um, the second thing is the, the pumping ability requires uh, at minimum two mana, four mana, or six mana. The good thing about Figure of Destiny is you can play your turn, and if you have some leftover mana, you can, you know, sink the rest of it into Figure of Destiny. With Ward in the first tree, you need at least two leftover mana, and things are going really bad if you have two leftover mana, right? Um, if you have four leftover mana, that's terrible, right? So yeah. there's no incremental pumping, right? And then I think the final nail in the coffin for this guy is the color he's in, right? He's in green. Right, green doesn't particularly have reach, neither does black or white. 
right? So, you know, you want a lot of mileage out of your one drop in green. You know, the, this is the color where you play two mana three threes, two mana three threes that are indestructible. So just having a one mana one one, and then, you know, at best he becomes a three three maybe. Like, that's just too slow for green. I, I don't think he's playable. If he was in red, I could see the argument getting better. But again, his pumping is just too expensive, uh, in my opinion. Those are some really good points that you made. The only really thing I'm going to say about the Warden, and I, I've said this already, is I like one-drops that aren't absolutely terrible later on in the game. So, like, Goblin Guide, that are, you know, just not absolutely miserable draw, drawing off the top. I don't know if this is going to automatically insert itself into standard. Modern is going to have to be a whole different discussion for a different day because uh, modern, you never know what is going to end up being good. One thing about the flavor that bothers me a lot. Sure. First of all, it's a one mana, one, one mythic. I, I don't know what's up with that. That bothers me. And second of all, you know, he's a superhuman, but he's not even legendary. Right? Like, you know, I understand yeah. why he's not legendary. He would really suck if you like have him as a one of, but you know, like if you're mythic, you should be at least legendary, right? But he's Yeah, it makes I, it makes sense flavor wise, yeah. I think it's better that he's not legendary because I think it, it would definitely add on to the hater list that uh Saffron is now uh <laughs> amassed for this particular card. But yeah, I, I just don't know, like yeah, it's a great one drop that's not miserable like later on in the game, but let's be honest, like if you're well relying on Warden of the First Tree like in your aggro deck to kind of win you the game, probably won't win anyway with Warden. Uh I don't know if this is any better than playing a Elvish Mystic first turn and just trying to ramp into a Siege Rhino. I I don't know at this point. I'm going to have to lean towards you're going to probably want to ramp into Siege Rhino or another like really good three drop like Anafenza or something like that. I mean, like like Richard said, it's a, it's a format where you have two mana three threes and three mana four fours and four mana five fives. I, I just don't know like a one mana one one that can potentially turn into a giant like creature. Again, you would have to actually use his last ability to pump him. Other than that, he's still just a three three. And so. and that is that is a good point. And I when I wrote my initial article on it, I did admit that. Figure Destiny is definitely much stronger in the middle of the game. Just being able to become a 4-4 on turn 3, definitely that part outclasses the Warden. So so I don't know. I guess I'm in the minority on this one. Yeah, I, I want it to be good, so I'm pulling for you. <laughs> so <laughs> to move things along, we're going to get to another mythic, uh, Monastery Mentor. And this one has drawn a lot of attention. So just to read the text on the cards for our listeners... It's too generic and white for a 2-2 with prowess. Mythic, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put a 1-1 white monk creature token with prowess onto the battlefield. So I'm going to open it up to Saffron first. Monastery Mentor. I think Monastery, Monastery Mentor is, going, is right now and will continue to be the chase mythic of the set. I think the card is going to be absolutely awesome and standard. And I think it's got a slight chance to maybe break into modern. I know the the arguments I've heard against uh, Mentor in modern is that it's a three mana creature that doesn't protect itself. But I think we forget sometimes that Prowless is sort of a way of protecting itself. 
You can't just fire off a burn spell at a prowess creature and expect it to get there if your opponent has mana up. So it's not as obvious as Hexproof, but there is a form of of protection. Yeah, you make a good point. Richard, what what are your thoughts on Monastery Mentor? Yeah, I think this card is broken. (laughs) It's just Young Pyromancer with upside. So the one extra mana is going to hurt. But the thing is, the tokens it produces are prowess, right? So that makes every token that sticks on the board that much more of a threat. In standard, this looks really scary. If you have, like, a, a Just Guy Ascendancy out, you can yeah, do some pretty broken true. things. It looks really scary. I, you know, I I could see it showing up in modern. I could see it showing up maybe in vintage. Like, I don't know, right? Young Pyromancer is everywhere. People have been beat, beaten down with elemental tokens left and right. So maybe it's time to get beaten down by monks. I, I don't know, but it just seems bonkers. Yeah, uh, I'm going to have to share that sentiment. This is a very strong mythic. I'm fairly certain it's going to see play in standard. I'm actually I'm going to guarantee here that it's going to see play in standard. It's, it's just a very powerful card. The fact that the tokens get prowess is pretty ridiculous. And again, a creature that is very good at every stage of the game. If you draw this later on in the game, it's just that much better because of the potential to have, like Saffron mentioned, the, the mana up to protect this and to also protect any tokens that have le- been left over from previous Monastery Mentors. So, yeah, I think this is a very solid Mythic. It will probably be the Chase Mythic of the set. Uh, any like kind of final thoughts on Monastery Mentor? I just wanted to mention, I'm really interested to see what this card does to Goblin Rabblemaster. I think that they are going to be fighting for the same slot in a deck like uh, Jeskai. Interesting. So, yeah. so I want to see how that shakes out. I'm not really sure, but I think that's an interesting debate. Uh, Monastery Mentor versus Goblin Rabblemaster. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how that fight's going to play out. I'm going to lean toward the Monastery Mentor at this point. Yeah, it you kind of tap out, and it's very vulnerable that turn. But at the same time, the tokens don't have to attack, and you can kind of manipulate Monastery Mentor a little better like to have it on your own terms rather than Goblin Rabblemaster's terms. I think they play a slightly different role. Um, like with Monastery right. Mentor, you kind of need to build around them. You need to have a lot of spells in your deck. Whereas yeah. Babble Master, you can just slap him into any aggro deck and, you know, he'll get value. So they have slightly different roles, but I agree in, a, in like I say, Jeskai deck, they might compete for the same slot. Yeah. All right. So moving along, that brings us to Brutal Horde Chief. I, I really like this one. So let me read you the text. So Brutal Horde Chief, Mythic, three generic and a black, three, three. Whenever a creature you control attacks, defending player loses one life and you gain one life. As an ability, three generic hybrid red-white, two hybrid red-white. Creatures your opponents control block this turn if able, and you choose how those creatures block. So I'm going to open it up to Richard on this one. What do you think of Brutal Horde Chief? I think it could be playable. It's going to depend on the format. So a lot of people think this is the Black Hellrider, um, but I, I don't agree with that. Uh, so basically, uh, this guy doesn't have haste, right? So... Best case scenario is on turn four, you play him, and you have three creatures in play. So his ability will give you three damage, right? So And three life. And three life. And so he acts, you know, he acts like a pseudo-haste creature, right? But your opponent will untap and then just clear the board. So he's kind of just like a four-mana 3-3. Three, three. He doesn't give you that punch that Hellrider gives you, where he gives you the 3-3 three, three haste body plus the extra damage. Where I think he'll shine is kind of a mid-range mirror. So if there are a lot of uh, mid-range decks, his 
five mana control how blocking occurs is really powerful. So I think yeah. that's where he'll be devastating, and that's his role player. He's not so much as a control finisher or anything like that, but more of a mid-range mirror, you know, match trump. All right, and uh, what about you, Saffron? I think this card is really good. I'm more on the Hellrider side of the argument here. I know it doesn't have haste, but uh, if you look at Hellrider, Hellrider kind of floated around the fringe for quite a while while it was in Standard, and then suddenly it was the best card in the best deck in Standard. And I'm, I think that at some point in the next year, Horde Chief is going to be a four of in a Tier 1 deck. I don't know if it'll be right away, but I think it will happen. And I just picture a curve of, like, Raise the Alarm into Goblin Rabble Master into Brutal Horde Chief. That's, without too much disruption, that's pretty much game over on turn four or turn five once you activate the ability. Interesting. I'm going to have to agree with what each of you said. So, Richard, yes, this is not Hellrider. And, unfortunately, because Hellrider is just an amazing card, and I wish I could play Hellrider in every single standard forever and i will greatly miss hellrider so much respect to hellrider i also think that the ability alone is just too good to pass up like this this the ability that brutal horde chief brings to the table like hellrider yes it doesn't have haste but the ability alone is just very good for what an aggro strategy wants to be doing so you get to recuperate some life loss from let's just say a, th- a thought seize or pain lands while presenting a board state that has to be dealt with or lose and that's largely what hellrider did it's either and th- and hellrider was in a, a format where we had four mana rats so now we're in a format that maybe the five mana rats are going to have to start coming back or else you're going to lose to brutal horde chief because the single target removal is just not going to be enough because you're going to use your single target removal on the Brutal Horde Chief. That still leaves, like Seth mentioned, a couple tokens or a a Monastery Mentor or Rabble Master that is just going to keep attacking on their next turn. So it's going to be interesting how it'll... It it may shift the meta completely to start dealing with Brutal Horde Chief or end up being like Hellrider and it kind of just hangs out in the fringe area and then all of a sudden is a a four of in in the best deck in the format. So... Interesting for this mythic, and we'll we'll see where that ends up. I like picking them up, you know, as a mythic. Could potentially be a big gainer well, at some point. And that's the thing we forget. At one point, Hellrider was pushing $20 as a rare. So mm-hmm. I don't think this card, as a mythic in a small set, I don't think it has to be as good as Hellrider to suddenly jump up to that $20 range at some point in the next year. Final thought on the Horde Chief, Richard, before we move along? No, I I think I agree with everything that's been said. All right, moving right along, that brings us to another potential, (laughs) I guess, controversy is Temporal Trespass. So just to read it to the listeners, Temporal Trespass is eight generic and three blue with Delve. It's a sorcery and a mythic. So Delve, each card you exile from your graveyard while casting the spell pays for one generic. Take an extra turn after this one, Exile Temporal Trespass. All right, so, Seth, what do you think? Uh, I think the card's cool. I mean, taking extra turns is always cool, but I don't see anywhere where it's going to be played. The The triple blue casting cost, I think, is a, a killer on this card that really limits decks where you can play it. 
All right, that's it's pretty upfront about it. All right, makes sense. Uh, Richard, what do you think? Yeah, uh, you know, the only place you're going to see this being played is some kind of blue commander deck. Yep. There, there's no real way to break this. Like, when people saw, uh, you know, the Miracle Time Walk, you know, you know, you could theoretically draw into that at some point and go off, whereas this is just you actually need three mana and a ton of cards in your graveyard. What's interesting to me about this card is kind of the design space that Wizards is exploring. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're basically just going back through, you know, the famous cards in Magic history and then adding Delve into them, right? Yeah, it's really so, interesting. <laughs> yeah, let, let's, let's play a fun game here. Let's, let's take some cards out of Magic's history. Very good Delve, ones. <laughs> and try to design the cards. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to lean towards, again, in a, in a small set where we have seen a lot of really good mythics, while this is not terrible, this is, and this is not like Archangel's Light by any stretch of the mean or Hellvault, uh, yeah, I just, it would take a lot to, for this to see some play, especially in Standard. Taking extra turns is not as, as lucrative as it once was, if that makes sense. Uh, obviously, Time Walk is always going to be an amazing card because it's two mana. But when you have to invest so much into taking an extra turn, I just don't think it's going to advance you any more than just playing a- another good card, if that makes sense. Like, Temporal Mastery, even in Legacy Miracles, doesn't see play, so that doesn't really bode too well for Temporal Trespass. Uh, I don't know, what do, you, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there's uh, much debate on the playability of this card. Yeah, certainly a, a casual and EDH, you know, tabletop, all-star. Foils could be lucrative, but again, there's just not much that really excites me about this. This is not like something, even back when it was released, you know, Mind Slaver was a very interesting card because you it's almost it was like pseudo time walk but you also got to advance your board greatly by manipulating your opponent's turn if this was something along those lines i think it would be more interesting but just generically taking an extra turn doesn't really do a whole lot for me yeah so a a good uh, a good point that seth brought up in his article was that time walks are always five bucks you know regardless of whatever iteration they're in they always go for five bucks so it shows you the casual appeal and demand of the card, and I expect sure. this to be a non-bulk mythic, right? People will yeah. still want this card. Yeah, there was a modern deck. I'm pretty sure that is like a time walk deck. Maybe this is just better than the one, a few of them in there. I don't know, but yeah, this is definitely like casual gold in terms of you know having an audience. Uh, any final thoughts, Seth? Uh, no, I agree with what you guys said. Um, I did want to ask Richard, though. You mentioned uh, the Delve game. How many red mana symbols in the Delve Fireball? <laughs> that's that's tough. That's... So, so we had something similar in Harvest Pyre, right? Harvest Pyre only went to creatures. You couldn't target players, but it was red one, exile X cards from your graveyard. If you Delve Fireball someone... It's tough. I think four red. That sounds that sounds about right to me, somewhere in there. Like, actually four red? Like, red, 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 red? Yeah, and, like, X. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's kind of killing the card, right? Like, how are you going to get four red mana? Well, yeah. I mean, Fireball is X, so you would have the added benefit of delving and paying mana. Wait, wait, so if you, if you delved two and paid four, would that be a Fireball for two? Yeah. 
That, that, yeah, that seems really <laughs> Because right. you'd only play it in mono red, right? Yeah. Yeah, for Maybe sure. Maybe three. I think three would be... Two Two is too little. Two is too little. Oh, two would three, be... Yeah. Three you could pull off, I think. I think three could be balanced. <laughs> Maybe four. All right. Um, so that kind of wraps up the mythics that we wanted to, wanted to talk about in this first MTG Goldfish podcast. Uh, we're going to go into a, now a segment that we, the three of us, have talked about, and it's just kind of our initial thoughts about Fate Reforged and kind of the precedent Fate Reforged is now setting, and a few of a few things we wanted to include in this is like kind of EV and the playable like const- like the constructed viability of each of the mythics and what that kind of can signal as something wizards may be doing to go forward. So I'm going to start it off with Seth to kind of talk about the EV of Fate Reforged just to kind of give you an idea, listeners, to what we're going to be talking about. All right. Well, just to uh, as a refresher for everyone, EV refers to expected value. And what that's talking about is when you crack a pack or a booster box, the EV is how much value you expect to open out of that pack or box. So, generally speaking, the EV is all goofy during pre-release times. The market isn't always behaving rationally. Everyone's hyped up and buying things on impulse. And But after the set's open for a while, the value of the cards you open from, say, a booster box is always going to end up being less than the cost of the box. So if a box is $100, you can't expect to open $200 worth of cards because someone like me would go out and buy all the boxes I could and make <laughs> and make 100 bucks off every box. So with a set like Fate Reforged in specific, we got a couple factors at play here. For one thing, we have fetch lands in the basic land slot, which is generally, in most sets, the basic land slot is pretty much valueless. So that's eating away some of that $100 expected value that you can hope to open from a box. We also have a lot of really low converted mana cost, potentially playable mythics, which are commanding a high price. If you assume that every other card in the set has no value, the maximum average value of mythics is somewhere between 15 and $20, depending on how you uh, calculate your prices. And right now the average uh, mythic value is pushing like 15 or $16. So the mythics are soaking up a ton of the potential value of every box that you open, which means there's not as much value left for rares and playable uncommons and all the other cards in the set. So what we see here in Fate Reforged is a little interesting because Saffron talked about it in your article for the website. The mythics are all playable. Like they're not, we don't really have like a Hellval or Archangel's Light. And this is not something we normally see in sets in general but especially like small sets like this oh right yep yeah so what what are your thoughts before we continue on with that richard yeah so i think the fact that we have so many low cost mythics will make the price of mythics a little wonky for this set seth already mentioned that there's a lot of value that needs to be spread out in this set and i think what's going to end up happening is since there's so many mythics that are playable what you'll see is that the mythics that are being played at the moment will spike really hard. And then when the next hot deck comes, 
the mythics in those decks will spike, and then the previous mythics will drop. So I think we're going to get a really spiky standard coming season. So I, I don't know what to make of that. Um, hold on to all your mythics. I, I, I don't know. Um, but there's yeah. just so many playable mythics, and since the converted mana cost is so low, you need a play set, right? If a, if a three-mana card is good for your deck, you're going to need four of it. Right, especially if it's not legendary, like Monastery Mentor. And what that also does is it depresses the value of rares. So there was an interesting article over at Brainstorm Brewery that talked about rares becoming the new uncommons. And I think we're starting to see that right in our face in this set, that the rares in this set are going to, unless they're insanely good, are not going to be commanding that high of a price because of these mythics because they're all they can all be playable they're not all terrible you know just comparing there was a article on star city games also that you know a while back uh by ben blyweiss talking about five years of mythics and just comparing fate reforged to a couple small sets it's really interesting that we this is kind of unprecedented with this mythic slot you know even just looking at dragon's maze right dragon's maze was a small set there were only 12 Mythics. And out of those 12 Mythics, we have Voice of Resurgence, and that was pretty much it. <laughs> and Blood Baron of Viscopa. So those were, there were like maybe three really good Mythics out of that set. So yeah, just, just comparing it to the small set Mythics, and we have Dark Ascension, where a set, again, 12 Mythics, maybe a few of those saw play. Uh, the one that really comes to mind is Falconrath Aristocrat. I mean, you go through Vorapede, Soren Ward of Innistrad, that was viable. Moonvale Dragon, garbage. Micaiah the Unhallowed. Huntmaster was great. Hellvault, Haven Ghoul Lich. Elbris, Drawskull Reaver, Beguiler of Wills, and Archangel's Light. So there was a huge disparity of really junk mythics and really good mythics. Is this something that maybe Wizards is now going to go forward and maybe we're seeing a new business model? I'm not sure. I mean, I think we'll find out as the next year or so of sets is released like this could just be an aberration and it could just be something that happens to fit with the theme of the block uh, with the cons being these small competitive creatures it could change as soon as the next set we could get dragons of Tarkir and have a whole set full of eight drop mythic dragons that could be the entire set so I'm, right. I'm not ready to say yet that this is the new normal but I think we have been heading that direction. If you look back, I had a, a graph in one of my articles where I was talking about this, and there has been an increase. I mean, the very first set, if you go back to that article you were reading, look at the mythics in Shards of Alara. You have Imperial Archangel, Godsire, Hellkite Overlord, all these huge, big, powerful effects. And if you look forward even to Cons of Takir, you got Anafenza, you have Sidisi, you have these more efficient, cheap creatures. So I think there is some sort of change going on. Exactly what it means for the long term, I'm not sure. But for Fate Reforged, yeah. it means less expensive rares. Yeah, the, the one thing that you mentioned there are, is an aberration. We do know that Wizards is changing its kind of block structure, so maybe they're kind of giving us a, a little bit of a taste of what that might be. But you're right. Yeah, it is too early to say this is a normal but there have been really solid mythics, like even just looking at Marod and Besiege, that stand out among last few years of sets with mythics in them. I mean, you had a lot of good playable mythics in Marod and Besiege. You know, there weren't too 
many terrible mythics. I mean, you have Praetor's Council, probably wouldn't have wanted to open that in a pack. But <laughs> other than that, there really were a few, all the mythics were fairly solid. I mean, you had Thrun, Sword, Massacre Worm, Hero Blade Hold, Consecrated Sphinx, Blightsteel Colossus. So, yeah, it could be an aberration. You're right. Maybe Dragons of Tarkir suddenly drops a bunch of, like, nine mana dragons all over us, and they're not all playable. But it could go either way. W- what do you think, Richard? I like the, the flavor theory that you guys brought up. Um, this set is about the cons. They're all human, right? right? And you already had the guild leaders at, uh, you know, four mana. So these guys naturally slot into the one to three mana range. And I think with the next set, what we're going to see is all dragon mythics at four to seven converted mana costs. So I I think that's the most likely scenario, because I I don't see wizards continually printing low-cost mythics that are all competitive. I think they're doing it as a flavor exception this time. So the one thing I want to talk about, so the the other weird precedent that uh, they've set with Fate Reforged is the complexity of this set. So I'm just going to list off some some keywords for you guys, okay? We have Prowess, we have Morph, we have Manifest, we have Level Up, uh, we have Delve, we have Ferocious, we have Bolster, we have Dash, we have the Khan's Dragon mechanic, we have Storage Lands, we have Casting Cards from Exile, we have Plus One Plus One Counter Movement, we have Lifelink on Spells, we have Gaining Abilities from Graveyards, and we also have Fetch Lands. Right? When I was reading some of these spoilers, I had to do a double take. You know, I didn't understand what some of these cards did. And it just feels like the level of sophistication is really high in this set. Right? And combine yeah. that with the fact that you have so many non-splashy, low-cost mythics, it feels like this set is tailored towards experienced player, the competitive player, and not so much you know, the new player or the player that just wants to cast splashy dragons. Right, the set feels very advanced to me, and I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, a lot of what we've been talking about in this podcast are the mythics, but there are a very good slew of rares also that are go along with your sentiment about being tailored to a more competitive player. I mean, there's just a lot of good rares too that are going to be unfortunately overshadowed by how many good mythics there are. But I mean, if you just look at the, a few of the spoilers that have come out more recently, Tazigur the Golden Fang seems very good. Mardu Strike Leader is a, a, a rare that I very much like in an aggressive strategy, and it's a very good rare. I mean, in, in another time, that could have been a mythic. It's just very good. There's a lot of different things going on in this set. It kind of reminds me of, like, Future Sight, right? Where they, or that kind of time spiral block where they have, like, all of these different sub-arcs and timelines going through this set, and I think that's really what they were going for, right, with this storyline? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my fear is new players will be turned off. First of all, cons aren't particularly exciting. Like, you know, do, do you play magic to cast elementals and dragons and golems, or do you play to cast humans? <laughs> right, well, I mean, a few of the cons are like not like snakes and like naga, and those are like kind of scary. Yeah, but so. yeah, and then <laughs> added with the complication of the sets, right? Like, <laughs> a new player is going to have a really hard time picking this up. Like, I, I wonder if wizards has found data suggesting that, you know, older players are leaving the game, and this was kind of like a throwback set for them. But it, it seems like they're alienating new players a bit and kind of catering to uh, the more experienced players here. Certainly a theory. So, yeah, uh, any, like, kind of final thoughts as we wrap this up? Yeah, certainly Fate Reforged is, is very good, and 
hopefully this translates into the final set of the block, because so far this block has been very interesting. Yeah, we'll go with you, Seth. I was just going to say, I don't know if I've ever been so excited for a small set before. Like the complexity, the playable mythics, some of the unknown factors, stuff we've never seen before. Like a lot of times for me, small sets are kind of the placeholder while you're waiting for the next big set. But this, for me, this small set is really exciting. I'm really excited for limited due to the complexity because I love time spiral block. And I do see that comparison. And I'm excited to see how all these mythics shake out and what this does to the financial aspect of it. So I'm definitely stoked for Fate Reforged. Yeah, certainly some great financial implications going forward with this set. Uh, Final thoughts, Richard? Um, I'm excited for Fate Reforged. There's a lot of cool things going on. It's interesting to see where Wizards will take this. You know, they've introduced a lot of new um, twists in Fate Reforged, so uh, it'll be very interesting to see how it all plays out. All right, yeah, I certainly agree with what both of you said. It's certainly exciting. I'm very much intrigued. I I probably share your uh, sentiment, Seth. Uh, I haven't been this excited for a small set either. Certainly pulling me in because of how great these mythics uh, are. Uh, So we'll see how those play out. Yeah, so everyone listening, thank you very much for joining us on the first official MTG Goldfish podcast. Uh, We invite you next time to... We'll be setting up a mailbag, so Richard will be setting that up via Twitter, and you can send us any questions over via Twitter, and we'll have a segment going forward to answer your questions. So, again, thank you for listening and being a part of things here. Uh, We have a couple of contests before we let you go for the week. We have a couple contests going on, so feel free to look at the details over at mtggoldfish.com and over on Facebook, the MTG Finance group have a couple contests going on so make sure to look into those so this is Chaz signing off for the first official mtg goldfish podcast this has been myself Chaz. here with me is seth saffron olive and richard the owner of mtggoldfish.com thanks everyone